Welcome to Never Just a Dog. I'm your host, John Littlefair. And in this episode, we have a very special guest, the remarkable and passionate Dylan Wilson, whose journey through the world of animal care and conservation has left a lasting impact on both wildlife and people. We'll explore his passion for wildlife conservation, the heartwarming stories from his time in the zookeeping industry, and his current endeavours, which involve providing support and comfort to pet owners during their most challenging moments. So let's dive into this captivating conversation with Dylan, a man whose love for animals and commitment to making a difference will inspire us all. Were you a big dog lover when you were a kid? Absolutely. Because my parents back in the day didn't want pets because they knew that they'd be probably taking care of them more than the kids. But I still remember we, we got a Maltese Shih Tzu. Ooh, I was probably five at the time. And to be honest, she lived right through until she was 15 years of age. So it was incredible. Um, and she was our family dog at the time. Her name was Katie. And to be honest, she probably started that animal loving side of me, you know, and really bringing out, wow, animals don't judge. They're amazing. They're just the best. So yeah, no, we definitely did. I'm fascinated by your career as a handler. Did it start at Taronga Zoo? Yeah, so I mean, to be honest, for as long as I can remember, I wanted to be I wanted to be the next Steve Irwin. And for as long as I can remember, I wanted to be a zookeeper. And I remember when I started to, you know, really head into that sort of line of work. I was about 17, 18, and I actually started a, a course here in Perth, just with, you know, Challenger TAFE as a certificate to in animal studies. Um, and when I finished that, I actually moved to Sydney. And that was when, because I wanted to start working at Taronga Zoo. And it was a massive risk moving from Perth. At the time, I was, as I said, I was freshly 17 on the border of becoming 18. Moved in with my uncle and auntie at the time. They were lucky to put me up. I started uh, studying at Taronga Zoo. So I was very, very fortunate. And during that training, it was over two years to complete that course. It was a certificate three in captive animal management. Over two years, I got to work in four different departments in, within the zoo itself. But the zoo industry is very, very competitive. So believe it or not, that wasn't actually enough on my resume to get me to be looked at by people that were hiring in the zoo at the moment. So at, at the time, I should say. So what I did is I reached out to the Australian Reptile Park and I was living on the Central Coast at the time. And I... <laughs> I actually applied three times to be a volunteer and I think they just accepted me because they were annoyed of me coming in with a resume. <laughs> so I think they were just like, you know what, let's just give this kid a go because he's that keen. And that's, that's pretty much where my career started. I started at the Australian Reptile Park. I was lucky I got, I was doing some work on an enclosure one day and I was luckily, you know, the, the person that was taking care of the volunteers that I was working with, she gave me a pretty good talk up to a boss. So I actually started working in maintenance at the reptile parks. I was fixing fences, mixing concrete, you know, cleaning the zoo, but I didn't care. I was in, you know what I mean? I was, it was my first gig. And then it kind of transitioned from maintenance into a presenting role or a roving role where we used to go and get the reptiles out and go and give talks to people or let them hold uh, different animals. So that's where it kind of transitioned, but I was still studying at Taronga at the time. So seven days a week, mate, I was in a zoo volunteering, spending time with animals. And I did that for about two years before I, I, I got a, a full paid gig as a zookeeper, I suppose you could say. And that's when I started working marine mammals at Taronga Zoo. 
just going back to the Australian reptile part, what's your most fascinating reptile, your favorite reptile that you got to work with? It's, it's such a, it's a great question. Favorite, favorite, favorite. Probably a tigu. What is a tigu? <laughs> I'm totally stumped, man. And it's funny because I'm trying to now go, how am I going to explain what a tigu is? Um, imagine an Australian monitor lizard, right? But they're not from Australia whatsoever. But they're actually, to be honest, I'm actually going to change this animal because I'm not going to be able to explain it to you at all, John. My favourite actually goes to the reticulated python, which is the longest species of python in the world. Now, they've got a little bit of a temperament, so they keep you on your toes when you're working around them, but they were my favourite. I think I was quite young, probably had a little bit of ego, and I was like, I want to handle something big and dangerous. So I loved a reticulated python. Tell me about the early days at Taronga, because you Mm. wanted to get into looking after, is it marine marine life? Yeah, marine animals. I I always thought, to be honest, starting out in my career, I was always going to take care of reptiles. And then I was lucky enough to be given the opportunity to work in the marine mammal section of the zoo. And it changed my life. It, it honestly did. I worked with seals and, and penguins um, and pelicans as well. But to be honest, when you meet a seal, it's, it, they're essentially the dogs of the sea. I love them. And I fell in love with them. I was a presenter. I loved presenting to people. We used to do talks three times a day to crowds in Sydney. And I think the response as well that people, whether they're traveling, they're tourists or they're locals in Sydney, they love the zoo and they love Taronga Zoo. And that's because of, I suppose, the conservation work that they do. And it's got that great reputation. Yeah, it was magic. It was magic. Taronga's approach on doing talks, probably the leader in conservation talks here in Australia, out of all the zoos. And that's because we are very honest with their history and where, we ca- where they came from. But also moving forward, we don't want to be using the animals for our own entertainment. We want to be showcasing their natural behaviours to the public. So we used to do three talks a day. The first and the last talk were Seals for the Wild. Now, essentially, this was a conservation talk, and it was showing the public the behaviours that we would display to the, well, the behaviours that we taught to the seals and the reasons for these behaviours, but also what is in, impacting seals in the wild right now. So it was incredible, and people loved it. Those are, those are probably the shows where you are going to see people getting splashed, things like that. We're interacting with the public. But then we used to do a midday talk and that was a training talk. Now, this was a different type of show and we actually, it was something new that we started to do whilst I worked at Taronga and it showcased every behavior or most behaviors that we would teach the seals. And we would say, there's a reason for this. Because I think the stigma on the zoos is an interesting one. And it's something that we could probably talk for hours on. People are either anti-zoos or people are, we love zoos. There's no real in-between. Whereas this training talk, I suppose, showcased, yes, we are asking a seal to do a flipper present, but there's a reason for it. Because when they actually, we bring the vets down, we had a vet hospital at the zoo, and the vets come down to check on the seals, we could just ask the seal to present its flipper, and it could be examined by a veterinarian. There's no stress response. Because the seal knows if I present my flipper, I'm going to get a reward, nice and easy. And they're also getting checked by a veterinarian. So I suppose it was a great talk for the public to realize if we're making seals do different things, or you'll, you'll see us do uh, making this, uh, I shouldn't say making, that's a terrible, <laughs> terrible way. But if I'm asking a seal, I should have, should change my language there. If I'm asking <laughs> a seal to do a behavior, there's a reason for it. There's a reason for its health. 
It might be, yeah, it might be health related or it might be naturally occurring in the wild, but we want to mimic that wild behavior. So we're asking a seal to do it in captivity. So yeah, it was very, very interesting. And that was kind of the midday talk. And I love that one because I think people were then able to go, you know what? I thought seals were going to balance balls on their nose. I thought this was going to happen. You guys aren't doing that. And I love it. You know, people used to come up to us after the show and go, wow, that was great. That was fantastic. Because I didn't realize there was a reason for you asking the seals to do these sort. You must have got pretty close to them because you say seals are the dogs of the ocean. They are the dogs of the ocean. Absolutely. I mean, we had an Australian sea lion. That was one of the species. We had a Californian sea lion. Uh, we had a New, Ze- New Zealand fur seals. So we had an array of different species at Taronga. You know, they had names from Bondi to Murphy to Diego. But our seals were, they were in two separate areas of the zoo. So we had seals that loved to do more of the presentations. And they were more of probably our younger and more confident seals. And then we had the greater... Uh, lower GSO or lower Greater Southern Oceans Precinct, where we had our seals that wouldn't do presentations, they'd still get training, but they were down in the other section of the zoo. But yeah, so it's, yeah, they are, <laughs> they're the best, but I couldn't actually tell you every single name because we'd probably be here talking for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> How long did you spend at Taronga Zoo? And did you stay just in the marine life section? I was a bit of a mover and a shaker. (laughs) I moved around a fair bit. I I stayed working in marine mammals as my zookeeping section, I I should say. So I was a zookeeper in that section, but I also worked in guest experience. And we used to do this great thing called like roar and snore, where people can stay over at Taronga Zoo, and then we take them on tours. And I think it was definitely the reason I became a zookeeper. I I used to think, oh, I just want to work with animals, you know, I want to showcase them. And that was why I became a zookeeper. But The more and more I worked with them, the more I realized that, no, the reason that I wanted to work with animals is because I wanted to give them a voice that they don't have. And that was through conservation. So these roar and snore programs are great because you get about 20 guests and they stay over at the zoo, but you go around after hours showing them the animals. Now we have certain torches that obviously don't affect the animals, so we're not shining torches on. We're pretty much walking around in the pitch black, but it's incredible because the zoo comes to life of a night. Kind of like the night at the museum. (laughs) And the guests love it. But it was, we're able to give those heartfelt, strong, personal conservation talks to a smaller group of people. And I still remember there was this one time where we were walking through tigers and we're giving our talk on tigers and the conservation surrounding Sumatran tigers. And we we were chatting about enrichment. And enrichment is something that we do as zookeepers to bring out natural behavior within our animals. And for the tigers, that's scent-based enrichment. Now, what the zookeepers do is they actually spray certain colognes in the, in the exhibit, and the tigers love it. They go around sniffing all the different types of cologne. And one of the tigers loves Chanel Number no. 5. <laughs> and I remember giving this talk, and, and there was this couple, and they said, oh, my God, I can't believe these tigers love Chanel Number no. 5. This is incredible. And I said, yeah, you know, it's, it's great for enrichment. It's very expensive, so we don't, we don't tend to use it that often. You know what I mean? Um, zoos, are, uh, we're conservation organizations. We're non-for-profit as well, so we're not going out and buying the Chanel Number no. 5. It was actually donated to the zoo from people. About a week later, parcel arrived for Roar and Snore. This couple had gone and bought six bottles of Chanel Number no. 5 and said, for the tigers, loved the Roar and Snore 
we want to come and see the Tigers again. So I know now that if I want to date a Tiger, yeah, yeah. Chanel number five, baby. <laughs> Chanel number five, you're on. <laughs> What else did you do at Taronga Zoo? Was it another department that had a big impact on you in particular? I think when I was when I was studying, I was I was uh, some of my practical training was down in the vet department, and I was very lucky. I had two mentors that were absolutely incredible in the vet department, and to be honest, they're pivotal in my career um, and continuing on in the zookeeping industry. But I feel like the vet department really opened my eyes to. One, the amount of work that Taronga Zoo does with, with animals that are brought in from the members of the public or animals that beach themselves and then rehabilitate and release. But also, it kind of showed me that, unfortunately, sometimes animals do pass and there's just nothing we can do. But if there's nothing that, or if we have done everything we can do, the one thing that we can do when they have passed is show them respect. And that was something that I learned in that department. Unfortunately, we did have wildlife cases. They can't all be saved. You know, and if I could change one thing in the world, I would change that. But we just can't. So I think that really, it started the realisation for me that, yes, if, if we have done everything we can and an animal does pass, we still need to respect that animal. So that was, that was a real eye-opener for me. You then cross over to the Irwin family zoo the yes. australia zoo mate tell me how that happened for you kind of a dream come true i'm going to be honest with you there john i still remember i actually applied similar to the australian reptile park i applied for australia zoo a handful of times but i didn't have the experience um and after i'd done all these things at taronga australian reptile park and i'd done other things you know voluntary as well i'd applied for a reptile keeping position and i was fortunate enough to get the call up and come up and be a reptile keeper now, that meant leaving my life in Sydney, driving to the Sunshine Coast, knowing no one, and just risking it all for this job at Australia Zoo, which had a probation period of six months, so it might not have worked out. But I did it, and I was very fortunate at the time that I, I actually started working there at the same time as a best friend of mine started working at the zoo. So it was great. We were able to move in together and, and things like that, but it was a great time. As I said, John, it was a dream come true for me. So did you take a liking to the crocodiles there or was it, um, I mean, when you think rep reptiles, I mean, obviously there are so many, but when you think Irwin family, absolutely, one thing comes to mind straight away. <laughs> absolutely, mate. And, and you're spot on. I mean, Crocs was, was the reason that I was going up there to work at Australia Zoo. A lot of the other zoos in Australia, they do have Crocs, but Australia Zoo, I suppose a few of the other Croc farms, maybe they're the only places that hand feed crocodiles now i'm talking you've got the food in your hands and you're feeding the crocodile there's no stick in the way and that was a massive draw card for me i wanted to feed crocodiles unfortunately i wasn't there long enough to feed a crocodile actually john but but i, I still love the experience i still remember you know working alongside terry Irwin, and we were we were catching crocodiles releasing them just all in-house at australia zoo because a couple of the exhibits were being um, renovated and she is so down to earth, so nice. But I still remember chatting with her and, and, and you know, just thinking, wow, this is just surreal that I'm actually chatting to Terry Irwin. But as the more and more I chatted to her, I just thought, she's just a person. We're all just people. No one's higher or better or than anyone else on this planet. We're all just people doing a job to contribute. Tell me about your acting career. <laughs> 
Here we go. <laughs> Let's dive into that. How did you get into acting? You know, how I got into acting was when I was, when I was working in Sydney, I actually didn't make a lot of money being a zookeeper. So I lived on the Central Coast, which was about an hour and a half, two hour drive to Sydney every day. And I was making pittance, to be honest, but I loved what I did. So it didn't matter. But unfortunately, that wasn't enough to sustain my fuel charges and all the rest of it. So I reached out to an acting company in Sydney and they did extras work. So you go on and you stand in the background and I thought this would be great. I can do my zoo gig of the day and then during the night I can go out and do all this extras work. And I got picked up luckily by Channel 7, Channel 9 and I did some extras work on Doctor Doctor, Home and Away, those sort of shows. And I wasn't, I wasn't acting. <laughs> I was doing nothing. In fact, I actually got in trouble one day because we were doing a continuity shot and I didn't, I didn't know too much about being an extra at that time, but I was given an orange juice and I just drank it because I thought that would look great in the back of the diner of Home and Away. <laughs> You're not meant to drink or eat the food. <laughs> so because I had done that in the first take, I had to do it for all the rest because of the fact that that first take was the take they wanted. <laughs> oh, so I remember getting in trouble by the second AD. He was like, I don't know if you're aware of this, but um, it, the orange juice wasn't meant to be drunk, but you're going to have to do that another six or seven times. Yeah, don't, don't drink anything, but um, don't forget to finish this orange juice off. So I remember coming back the next time and I thought, that's it. Home and away will never hire me again. But luckily enough, I came back a few, few more times. <laughs> I remember saying to the rest of the extras, Guys, don't eat the food and don't drink the drink because um, you're not meant to do it. And it was definitely one of those things that, as I said, it kind of gave me that little bit more income. So I was able to pursue my career in, in zookeeping and, and working at Taronga. Did you come back to Perth to work at Perth Zoo? I did decide to come back home before I worked at Perth Zoo. I worked um, for a mining company for a couple of years and then the FIFO life just really wasn't for me. So I was very fortunate um, enough to get a job at Perth Zoo and I worked in exotics there. So I worked for... I worked with primates and I worked in the ungulate uh, section. So we're talking giraffes, rhinos. They are, the, they are the best. And honestly, to be honest, as I said, I wanted to start as a reptile keeper, became a marine mammal keeper, fell in love with marine mammals. It was like that when I worked with ungulates. So an ungulate, just so everyone's aware, is an, an animal that has got a hoof or a hoof. Um, and that's what we, we class ungulate species as. So a sheep is an ungulate. So a giraffe and a rhino are classified as an ungulate species as well. So, yeah, but they, I fell in love with giraffes as soon as I started working with them. They're incredible. And especially rhinos as well. I mean, rhinos are essentially just large Labradors. They're incredible. They've got such a personality about them and they're very, very playful. I thought they'd be quite shy and timid, but once you build a relationship with them, they, they just accept you in. They're the best. Let's talk about giraffes. Was there Absolutely. one you really bonded with more on an emotional level or spiritual yeah. level in a sense? Yeah, big time. I think... I think one of the females, her name was Ellie. She's gorgeous. She was a giraffe that we actually got in a transaction with Australia Zoo because we work on a conservation breeding program with our giraffes. So they're an endangered species. And Ellie, I just liked her because she had attitude. She never did what she was meant to do. She was her own independent woman. And I just love that about her. But the giraffes as a whole, quite a skittish species, you know, not really making a lot of bonds with their keepers. It was the opposite. They were so friendly. Yes, they are skittish. I mean, a leaf would fall off a tree and they'd run. That's how skittish giraffes are. But they, they did. They built such a connection with the giraffes and we did a lot of training with them. I was very fortunate because when I started on giraffe rhino round, I, both of our female giraffes were pregnant. So I was very fortunate that I actually got to see 
two giraffe calves be born at Perth Zoo. And during that time, it was absolutely, it was magic. I mean, we have two two babies running around. It was, and it's and it's exactly what everyone says, you know, about a about a baby. There, they're a lot of work, but they're worth it because they're so cute. And it's also great before the species as well because of they are an endangered species. So to have two at once was absolutely incredible. And we had to hand rear one of them because one of the females it was her first time giving birth, so she just wasn't. She wasn't the best mum, but this can happen in the wild. Very, very common that the first calf that they generally sire is, uh, sorry, uh, give birth to doesn't go that well. So we gave Ellie a, a bit of an opportunity, but there was obvious signs that she was not going to take care of the young one. So we had to step in and hand raise a, hand raise a giraffe. So, no, What's his name? And is he still there at the zoo? Is, yeah. So his name is Akiki, and I believe he's still at the zoo. And he was a boy. And yeah, he, he was gorgeous. I mean, he's going to be a very good looking male giraffe. We, he's going to be tall, dark and handsome as, as we say, but it's going to be great for his, um, his species as well. So he'll probably go to another zoo. I'm not too sure what Perth Zoo's plans are for him at this time, but when I was working there, potentially he might've gone to another zoo to, you know, continue on the conservation breeding program. Tell me the hardest things about that role that presented for you. Yeah, big time. And I'm glad you brought that up, actually, John, because I think we definitely, I don't know, we put this facade over zookeeping or the or zoos as, as a whole. And, you know, my hero growing up was, was Steve Irwin, you know, and watching him on the TV and watching what he does was so amazing. And the amount of people that, you know, would come up to me on the street all the time, you work at Tronga. Wow, you must have the best job in the world. You know, I'd go to the shops in my Australia Zoo uniform after work. Oh, what do you work with at the zoo? I can't believe you work there. There is this next level kind of feeling to it but in saying that it definitely does have its downfalls like every job and like every career and that's because you do take everything that you do every day super personally because it affects the welfare of your animal i used to say to people you know people go oh how come your job's so stressful you just take care of you know animals mate it must be the best and i would would always say i i take the role as seriously as if this animal doesn't get this today that's it. They don't get it. There's no, you know, plan B. It's if I don't give this animal the best welfare that I can within my day, I've let that animal down. And imagine if you took, you know, you took care of 30 animals, you know what I mean? So it's a lot, it's very taxing mentally on you, especially on your physical health. Cause it is a quite a physical role, but, um, and that was probably the reason why I was ready to leave the industry when I was at Perth Zoo. And I think working in that industry for as long as I did. I met so many great people and had so many great experiences, like genuinely that I still pinch myself. What do you do now? I'm really interested in what career path you took. Yeah, well, now I work for one of the largest pet cremation companies here in Australia. So I I kind of, I kept those skills in animal care, but I suppose now I focus on something very similar to animal care, but in a different way. So we're all, all about obviously, you know, taking care of people when they're experiencing probably their worst day. The level of care that my company gives to every single client is amazing. I'm very fortunate. I've worked in every department within the company and, you know, I've, I've returned pets home to clients and that is, it's surreal because you're, you're essentially... When you, when you give a pet ashes back to a client, 
It is very emotional. And 90% of the time, the client is very emotional. But they're emotional, but they're thankful. And that's the thing. I've never been thanked. so. And it's not about being thanked at all. It's not about people saying thank you at work at all. But I've never been thanked so much than working for the company that I do now and because of what we do for the client. We've had clients say to us, you know, I didn't even know pet cremation was a, was a thing before this. And this is the best thing that was the worst thing that's ever happened to me, but it's the best outcome. You have helped me grieve my pet. And without this process, I don't know how I would have got through it. And that speaks volumes. So just being able to be available for clients when they're going through a real tough and difficult time, we're there for them, is so rewarding. Very, very rewarding. How long have you been with Launchwood for now? So I've been working for the company for around two years and I work in relationship management. So I work with the vets in the industry, which I love. You know, chatting with vets all days is a, is a, is a lot of fun and we have a lot of great clients. But um, as I said, working in every department, I think has helped me a lot within this role because the best thing about the company that I work for is that we are transparent. It's an honest approach. And if a client asks a question, we're always going to give a truthful and an honest answer. We even have certain things where clients can actually do what we call a viewing cremation. Now, a viewing cremation is for clients that want to 110% ensure that they're getting their one pet back. So what they can do is they can come to our facility, they can spend a viewing, so about half an hour to 40 minutes with their pet, and then we actually place their pet within that cremation chamber. This was something that we thought it was only going to be something that a couple of owners would like to do. It's very, very popular. Almost five days a week we offer this service because of clients wanting that option. So what we do at our company is we offer viewings, which means that then once we receive the pet, we can actually showcase it in our viewing room where the client can spend anywhere between 90 minutes to an, two hours viewing that client's pet and spending that time with them. That's pretty amazing. Absolutely. And it just, it, it helps them a lot, especially if it is a sudden passing, which unfortunately a lot of pets are, you know, and we're all there. They are able to bring in their other pets that haven't passed to say goodbye to their deceased pets. So we have a cat run, a dog run set up. We've even had birds come in and it's self-contained in that area. We have treats for the dogs, treats for the cats. So then that way they're also able to say goodbye to their companion, you know, their best friend. There's all different ways that the ashes of people's beloved pets can be presented back. The ashes of both of my dogs are in a beautiful wooden box and they sit in the studio here. So what are some of the new and emerging trends or is it kind of staying very traditional there? To be honest, John, it's a great question because at my company, we're always going to offer traditional, I suppose, urns, boxes that people will have always loved and they want their pets to be returned home in. What we've done recently is we've listened to our clients in what they would like to present their pet in when they have passed within the home. So we're moving forward to what we call modern products or modern urns. And these can include, you know, a vase, so a, a vase. And what can actually, what happens with this vase is the pet's ashes are in the bottom. It's then sealed. And then you can actually place fresh flowers in the top of the vase. That's pretty gorgeous, man. It is. And it's, and it's one of those things where a lot of clients have said to us, I would love to have my pet on display, but I would not like it in an urn because it's just, for them, everyone's different. 
and that's the thing. No one's right and no one's wrong here, but everyone's different. And for them, they go, look, that's a bit confronting for me in my home. So this is why we brought these modern urns in where they are the pet's ashes. The owner, the client knows that that's their pet in there. But for anyone visiting the home, you've just got a lovely vase or a vase with some flowers in it. And we do have a variety of other products that are similar. So we succulents, plants, becoming very popular in the home. People love them. So we even have some options where we can actually place the pet's ashes inside, close the lid of the pot plant, and there's actually a plant that can be planted into the top, like preferably a succulent, something with low, that doesn't need a whole lot of watering, and that way your pet's in, in something similar to you know, a pot plant. And it can come with a plaque on it if you'd like, but again, it doesn't have to if you just want it to be a remembrance for yourself but no one else. It's giving everyone an individual choice, which I love. Big time. And that's the thing. We, we don't really want to have products that only a certain amount of clients can, can purchase. We want everyone to feel included, everyone to have an option. Because at the end of the day, you, you know, it's, not a, it's not a great experience what they're going through, but we want to make the best of a worse experience for them. I've heard as well of people turning their beloved pets after they've passed away into diamonds. Is that something that you guys do as well? We do. And it's, to be honest, it's something that's getting very, very popular. So that the process isn't actually done here in Australia because there isn't a facility that can do it. So we actually do send it to the U- United St- um, sorry, to the UK and they do the process. But a small pinch of the pet's ashes is taken and it's placed under immense pressure and it's turned into a diamond. And we can do anywhere between $5,000 diamond to $60,000 depending upon obviously how much ash you have and the cut, the clarity, all those things come into play with diamonds. So they are a very popular, I suppose, tribute to a pet as well. Some clients find that they will be wearing a piece of jewellery every day. So jewellery is very popular for clients. And having that diamond, they can go, this is my pet. But again, if they don't want to share that with everyone, it's just a lovely ring that they're wearing. Did you know you can buy a star? Really? Yeah, you can buy a star or have a star named after you. Yeah. I think it's called Name a Star. Yes. It gets, comes with a booklet and yeah. how to find it. I think Big it's star. just getting amazing. Well, I think it's great. Hey, you know yeah. what I mean? It's something yeah. different. It's something new. And I, I love the idea of it, to be honest. Yeah. Naming a star. I mean, how incredible. And it's something that, you know, a lot of people aren't going to have. And yeah. what a great tribute. Tell me how you met your wife. It's funny. I, I love this story because <laughs> my wife and I do tell it slightly differently. I love it. I love it. Um, so we, we actually met when I, when I moved over here from Australia Zoo to work in the mining industry. We met on our probably one of our first days because we actually we were meant to be working on two separate teams. So what that means is she was meant to be night shift and I was meant to be day shift. So reality is we never would have really seen each other. But as fate has it, I wasn't meant to go into night shift because I've never done night shift before and the company said it's unsafe, so you actually go into day shift. So my, you know, my wife and I actually spent the full week in a, just in a computer room doing all these online portal things that you've got to do, you know, your OH&S, and that's it. So we, had, we did 12-hour shifts. So we had 12 hours to talk for over a week, and that was it. We fell in love immediately. Um, and then we did go to separate shifts and we only saw each other for, you know, five minutes or so. Funny story. <laughs> I don't know whether this actually is funny or a little bit cheeky, but I, I was really nervous to get her phone number. So, and I didn't really want to just ask 
because if I said if she said no, it, which, which is totally fine, it just would have been a bit awkward. So I thought, you know, how do I ask for her phone number? And she said to me, hey, you, you know, you like reptiles. I actually found like there was a lizard outside my my donga last night. Here's a photo. Anyway, it was a super basic lizard. <laughs> I think it was a bearded dragon or something. But I actually said to her, this is a critically endangered species oh, and no one's God. seen these for years. So do you mind if you just send me that photo to my phone because then I'll, I'll just send it around to my friends because they, they won't. They, they'll be shocked that you found this. Was it like a gecko or something? <laughs> <laughs> I think it was something super basic, like a bearded dragon. Looking back, I mean, absolutely. Um, <laughs> the ethics, we could chat ethics all we want. Um, but she said, of course, you know, I'll send this on to you. Funnily enough, she had two different SIM cards because the SIM didn't work up at site. So she would swap it out every week she'd go to work. So on break, she'd swapped out a different SIM, which wasn't her phone number. But I texted that number and said, hey, do you want to maybe catch up, go to the beach? No reply for a whole week. <laughs> oh, no. Shot down in flames, buddy. <laughs> shot down in flames. And I was like so embarrassed. Go back to work the next week. We then, uh, as fate have it, ha- has it, we on the flight, we were put next to each other. So awkward for me because I just thought she just hadn't responded. So I was like, look, this is awkward, but it is what it is. It's more than fine. Then I saw her swap over a SIM card and then a text came up, which was from me. And it said, hey, do you want to catch up? And she goes, sorry, I didn't reply. I've got two, two SIMs. And it was the perfect thing because we just laughed about it and said how funny it was. And I told her, I was really honest with her. I said, I was so nervous to come to work this week because I thought you just didn't want to catch up. And I, I didn't want to, you know, come off weird or anything. And she goes, no, that's so funny. I've got two SIMs, so it didn't work. Anyway, we ended up catching up the next break and the rest is history, mate. There's a pretty big question I want to ask you. Mm, please, John. Tell me about Wilson. Wilson, yes, he he's our first baby, so he is he's two now, two years old. Crikey, that time flies. Um, he's our our pet golden retriever. Uh, my wife and I got him yeah two years ago, and we always see him as our first baby. To be honest, John, your first dog is always your first baby. Uh, but he's he's incredible, absolutely incredible. We actually, when we got married, my wife and I, we changed our last name. To and we actually created a new family name, and it's Wilson, because we we're realistic. Unfortunately, Wilson does have to pass on one day, but his legacy will always live on in our family name. So that's the way that we'll always remember him by. Because we were we were umming and ahhing on which surname to take, and look, we, we were chatting about it and stuff because yeah, we didn't want to be traditional, so to speak. You know, I didn't want to say to Rihanna, "Oh, you've got to take my last name." You know, I said, "Let's just, you know, it's up to you if you'd like to or not." And then we came up with this idea and we said, oh, if we were going to change our last name, what would it be though? We had all these names written down and we thought, you know what would be great? Wilson. Because people will always ask us, oh, where's your last name from? And even in 20, 30 years, I'll always say that was the name of our first child, our first pet, Wilson. That is incredible. I've never, ever heard that anywhere <laughs> it's yeah. one of those funny things when you change your name you realize how much of your life is created in you know email addresses and things like that and you go crikey i've got to change all these so i'm just going to keep my old email address <laughs> <laughs> and my wife had to do that as well so it is there's a lot of paperwork involved that yeah. is so cool so, man a bit different and you've got a little baby now to little marlo and his um his middle name is wes after our second dog wesley um, so his full name is Marlo Wes Wilson. 
So he'll always have a great, great story to tell, named after our first two kids, really, as we always say to him. So, no, he's fantastic. Keeps me on my toes, that's for sure. This has been incredible having you in here. I love hearing your story and you're still a young fella. Things are just starting for you and can't thank you enough, mate. Most welcome, John. Thank you so much for having me on, mate. I really do appreciate it. Love what you do. Thanks, mate.